Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. We'll take on a new horse training or horse care topic in every episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy the ride. I'm Heidi Malacco. I'm here with Julie Goodnight. And Julie, today we have a couple of questions that people have written in about. Um, the first one is, how tight should you tighten the cinch and what's the right process? Probably to avoid having a cinchy horse down the road, what can you do to make sure you're doing it right from the start? Sure. Well, that's a great question. Um, how, how tight the girth or cinch needs to be depends a lot on the shape of the horse um, and somewhat on the kind of riding you do, the size of the rider. and um, So basically the saddle has to be tight enough for you to mount and dismount without causing the saddle to shift to one side or the other. And um, once you're riding, the idea is that the rider stays in the middle of the horse. Obviously, if the rider gets off balance at any time, say the horse spooks and you lurch all your weight suddenly to one side or to one stirrup, um, the cinch has to be tight enough to uh, not cause the the saddle to slip. And... If you have a very round, low-withered horse, you're going to have to tighten the girth really tight. If you have a very A-frame-shaped horse with prominent withers and um, not uh, more angular than round, then that horse can probably get by with a much looser stench. And so... The girth and the center are the same thing, Western and English terminology. Um, the girth of the horse is a body part, and that's that very um, tender and sensitive part of the horse just behind his elbow, where uh, the area where the center, the girth, um, contacts the horse. And uh, so how tight depends on the shape of the horse, the size of the rider, how, how much, uh, how challenging the riding you're doing is. Um, now, and Julie, go ahead. there, though, tell me about the size of the rider. How does that relate? Well, it's not just the size of the rider. It's the size and ability level of the rider. So the lower the ability level, the more off-balance the rider's going to be. Okay. And... Or, the, or potentially. And so um, the more advanced and expert the rider becomes, the better balanced they are. So size is, is really secondary to the balance of the rider. But a 30-pound rider getting out of balance on a 1,000-pound horse is a much different scenario than a 250-pound rider getting out of balance on a thousand pound horse or a 900 pound horse so um so it it, it, that's all part of a ratio and you know there are times at which the penalty for having your saddle slip is or let's say the risk not the penalty the risk of having your saddle slip is going to be much greater say for instance when you're doing something like cutting sure the horse is doing 180 degree changes of direction abruptly um, and the more turning, the more lateral movement, 
um, the more that saddle slippage comes into play. So but the important thing to remember about how tight it is is that you can also have the sense too tight and cause great pain and discomfort to your right. horse. And often you end up with what we call a cinchy horse. I've written a lot about cinchy horses. We've talked a lot about them. We've got videos on that online. But um, so we don't want to create a cinchy horse by causing them pain with the cinch. Um, so as far as the procedure for tightening the cinch, first and foremost, it's, uh, it's a good idea if, if in doubt, you should untie the horse before fastening the cinch. And whenever possible, move the horse around between uh, the tightenings uh, so that the saddle sort of adjusts and moves into place and you don't mm-hmm. over-tighten it with it being um, not quite in the right place. Um, you know, we, you know, if I had my horse tied up and I was saddling him, I don't have to bring him away from the hitching rail. But I, if I had him tied hard and fast, I might just undo the slip knot um, right before I tighten the cinch. Just in case he, it makes him uncomfortable and he throws his head up, he doesn't hit the end of that rope and then get into trouble, um, mm-hmm. you know, have a little panic. So um, untie the horse when possible. Uh, always, if, you, if the horse is, let's say, a very young colt and so hadn't been saddled much, or a horse that is cinchy, I like to rub the girth area before pulling the cinch up, and then I'll just hand pull the cinch a couple of times to warn the horse that it's going to be tightened. And then I'll just tighten the saddle. This would be the same for English or Western. I'll just tighten the girth tight enough that the saddle will stay in place just sitting on his back without it moving. So just snug it up. And then I'll come back a moment later and go up a hole and then up a hole and then up a hole. Um, Before I actually get on, I will always walk him at least three or four or five steps. Um, Again, let that saddle settle where it's going to be. And then I'll tighten it um, enough to get on. And uh, if the saddle slips when I get on, that's probably not tight enough because um, as he warms up, as the tack compresses, there's many things that contribute to the saddle getting, uh, the girth getting looser as the horse warms up. Um, So chances are as my horse warms up, I'm going to want to tighten that cinch one more time. So it's a great habit whether you trail ride or maybe especially if you trail ride, um, 10 minutes into your ride, in the habit of just checking your cinch or girth one more time uh, to see if it needs tightening. Okay. That makes sense. Now, Julie, at the beginning of this, I think that was a great overall answer, just kind of piqued my interest when you said if the horse doesn't have much withers and is pretty round, then you'll have to tighten it more. And we want, at the same time want to stop people from I'm totally tightening it if more than they have to. Is there a certain kind of cinch that you might recommend more for that kind of horse or anything that could help so you didn't have to totally strap it down? 
Yeah, you can experiment with. Uh, there, there are certainly pads that make um, make it worse. Saddle pads, uh, fleece pads. I don't use fleece pads at all, but um, but especially not on a round horse because they they are more slippery. I like a wool, a contoured wool felt pad, um, and partly because it breaks into the shape of the back right. of the horse I use it on. Um, and so it has a little more contouring. Um, some people like a neoprene cinch um, when they have slipping problems, and um, that could help. Uh, a, the best thing is a mounting box, so right. you're not pulling the saddle off center when you mount. You cannot dismount to a saddle, uh, uh, to a mounting block. That's unsafe. But um, yeah, yeah that's then, that's what I was envisioning. I guess is just it, you know, especially imagining that contour of the saddle pad. If that fits, instead of being one of those that just looks floppy and like it could just you know, slide on over the other side of the horse, then maybe your saddle pad can help you a little bit. Your saddle fit itself might help a little bit. So kind of just yeah. just thinking that through that experimenting with the tack could maybe help you from just tightening down something that's not really the right thing for that round back horse anyway. Right. Exactly. Okay. And moving, the, uh, if you have a saddle with multiple rigging options, you can move the uh, rigging back a little bit and, uh, try to, you know, sometimes it, it just depends on the shape of the horse, but sometimes it's because they have a lot of fat up over over the withers, and so uh, sometimes moving the rigging back just a little bit might allow you to get a better uh, cinch on there. That makes so sense. So that's a matter of experimenting with your horse and, and different um, equipment. A breast collar will help, um, a well-fitting breast collar. Okay. Now... Specifically, though, when people are checking the cinch, where should they be checking? Because you see a lot of people checking in the wrong place. Absolutely. Well, where you cannot check is uh, just below where you fasten it, um, the behind the shoulder of the horse, because most horses are pretty concave there. And so if just below your saddle... It's just below the bottom of your saddle. You stick your hand in behind the cinch right there. Right. It's always going to feel loose because the, there's a lot of room there. The best place to check is is just behind the front legs of the horse on the center line from the back. And um, you want to just stick – you sh should be a, – a good ballpark figure for how tight it should be is that you should be able to get your index finger in if you if you reach down right into the to the middle of the horse between his legs at the back of this inch, uh, you should be able to get one index finger into your first joint, and that's it. Okay. If you can get two in, it might be too loose. If you can get in past that first joint, it might be too loose. Um, if, but if it's your own personal horse, you you get to know over time uh, what feels, uh, how tight it needs to be um, to 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 work the best. And um, so, but one thing I hear people say a lot that always cracks me up is, um, 
I hear her say, oh, well, you, you, you know, you're not on the same hole as you were. Um, that, I, ne- I never pay attention to that with my horses because, um, certainly that's true. They, that it's not a real static thing. Right. I mean, sometimes I might ride the sense a little looser. Sometimes I might ride it a little tighter. Um, and, uh, and also I change it. You know, I, I take so much time. I tighten it several times before I get it to the tightest spot. I just tend to go by feel and, and you develop that feel over time of what each individual horse needs in terms of how tight the scent should be. That makes sense. And then I know from trail rides, a lot of places will stop and check the cinch before you trot. And I know you advise maybe like 10 minutes into your ride, check again. Is that kind of a CHA-approved thing to always check it before the change of gait? Yes, absolutely. And especially before, um, you know, I a lot of people would say you're going to warm up through the trot and then uh, before you canter, uh, check it one more time. Okay. Good. But uh, or 10 minutes into the ride. It, it just totally depends on the kind of ride that you're doing. Sure. And, again, on the experience level and what you've been doing, you know, before and after. So, good. Mm-hmm. I think those are all interesting things. And that was the first to me to really think about the, the balance of the rider affecting it. You just kind of always tightened it up for lessons, but that sure makes a lot of sense. Good. Okay. So our next question is a little bit more intense here. How do you train a horse to go from direct reining to neck reining? Yeah, well, that uh, is a short question. <laughs> and a really long answer. But a kind of a long answer. Um, actually, when, when I start young horses under saddle, we start teaching them the neck rein from day one. Um, the neck rein is uh, really has to be trained to the horse. It's a trained response, uh, whereas the leading rein is um, pretty much any horse will respond to because you're moving the horse's nose. So right. um, from day one, the very first time you ride a horse, you have to start turning it. And generally, um, you're, you're, you're going to have to use the leading rein for that. And um, most people that learn to ride on already trained horses learn how to turn with a direct rein, which um, – so everything that, that we're talking about is going to involve two-handed riding with your hands in correct position, which is in both hands in front of the pommel, um, you know, a few inches apart, uh, depending on how big the horse you're riding is. And a straight line from elbow, from the rider's elbow to the corner of the horse's mouth. And most riders learn on trained horses, and what they learn for turning is the direct rein, which is bringing your turning hand, your inside rein, straight back towards your hip. And um, that, however, doesn't work on untrained horses because... Um, the direct rein is called a rein of opposition. And if you pull back on the rein, uh, it causes, it is in opposition to the horse's forward movement. And so when you're riding a colt for the very first time, you have to turn him the very first time. And you may have to turn him before you even get him moving mm-hmm. forward. And 
but forward motion is the basis of all training. So you cannot use a direct rein. Uh, you cannot pull back on the reins when you're riding a colt for the first time. You have to just let yeah. it learn how to move freely forward. And so we use what's called a leading rein, which is, again, from correct hand position. Instead of pulling back on the rein at all, keeping your elbow, elbows, both elbows next to your ribs, you just open that inside rein um, out to your side so it is a sideways pull on the rein and opening pull on the rein, not a backward pull on the rein. And so as you're trying to get that young colt to move forward, we can use the leading rein, which will cause him to turn without interfering with his forward motion. And so um, the primary rein aid then that you're using is the leading rein. But as a secondary rein aid, with your outside hand, you can close, bring, bringing your outside hand to all the way to the midline, but not over the midline of the neck, and that's the neck rein. So the neck rein has no pull on it at all. It's just a touching of the rein against the neck. And to neck rein properly, when you're riding two-handed, you're at, the neck rein should never cross the midline of the horse's neck. So you just close with your outside hand, but you're mainly riding off the leading rein. So with the leading rein, I can guide the horse's nose and bend his neck. Um, and at the same time, I can just close with the outside rein so that he, at the same time I'm asking him to turn, I'm applying the neck rein, and eventually he associates those two things. So that's what I'm doing from day one on a, horse, mm -hmm. on a totally untrained horse. Very shortly thereafter, as he starts associating the neck rein with turning, then what I can do is turn with both rein aids again, leading and neck rein. And then once the horse gives his nose and bends his neck, I release the leading rein and hold the horse in the in the turn with the neck rein, just the touch of the rein on mm -hmm. his neck. And at this stage, I'll correct with the leading rein when I need to, but I, my goal is to hold the horse in the turn uh, with the neck rein. So that's the, kind of the mm -hmm. second level. And then the third level is to start initiating the turn with the neck rein reinforcing with the leading rein as needed. So I would touch the neck rein to the neck, and if that didn't cause a turn of the horse uh, right away, I would bump the leading rein to bring the horse's nose where it should be and then go back to holding him in the turn with the neck rein. So at that third stage, apply neck rein, reinforce with the leading rein, um, pretty soon, if your reinforcements are timely and the pressure is adequate, this can happen pretty fast, you know. Let's say, um, you know, I would say you should spend at least a week at each uh, okay. level. Um, but that it entirely depends on the timing and the, um, the appropriate amount of pressure. That, that comes from the rider. So, um yeah, so then the third step is you're initiating the turns and correcting, 
And then at some point, um, you're, you, right away, you should be doing less and less and less correcting. If you're, if you're continuing to have to correct for months on end, um, some, either your timing is off or the, or the amount of pressure you're using in the correction is inadequate, or, as I see many people do, you're kind of holding and pulling on the reins instead of just applying the rein aid and allowing the horse to make the response. And when you say your timing is off, you mean the time that you initially gave the cue, either with the leading rein or the neck rein, and then reinforced it. And you want that to be a really short amount of time, and if you let that go, the horse isn't going to get it quite as quickly. Absolutely. It, it has to be within three seconds is the common wisdom. But the truth is the sooner in that three seconds the correction or release, that's a big part of the timing, the sooner the correction or release occurs, the faster the horse learns. So that's where timing comes into play, and that's why um, horse trainers with good timing can train horses a lot faster mm-hmm. than, so in other words, uh, you and I are both making the same correction um, or the same release. And really, I, honestly, it's more in the release of pressure because, for instance, let's say what I'm trying to get my horse to do is lower his head when I um, give him a cue with the reins. Well, if if the release comes to him within a half second of his head starting to move down, he learns really fast from that. But if the head moves down um, a half an inch and then it takes three seconds or two seconds for the release to come, and by then the head's already come back up, um, it, it could take, you know, hours to get him to... Right. Uh, learn that too. So that makes sense. the timing is—it's it, not just the timing of the correction; it's the timing of the release as well. And it optimal is about a half a second. Um, what I like people to think about is one—just think about it coming within one second, so one one thousand. So um, you know, so you apply the neck ray, so neck correct. Um, so it's that timing of the reinforcement. And then the correction, I like to use just a, a bump of that rein. And, and how much, how much of a bump it is depends on the sensitivity of the horse and the type of bit you're using. Um, but you'll know if it's enough or not enough, or not enough by the reaction of the horse. When you bump the rein, his nose should immediately come in. Um, looking for that release of pressure. Right. And uh, the reason why I like the bump and not the pull is because when you pull, you start just hanging on the rein, then you're pulling him around the turn, and then he starts leaning in the opposite direction. Right. So um, you want him to start his nose in the turn and then hold himself in that turn until you release him from it with your body. Um, and you don't want to be doing what we call a U-Haul turn where you just haul him <laughs> around the turn, um, uh, which is, you know, I equate that to like riding uh, or like leading a bull with a nose ring. You know, you're just <laughs> kind of pulling his nose around everywhere. So 
So anyway, so that's so yeah. it's just a process, and um, the neck brain is not just for Western horses. Um, it, it is just a very handy uh, rain aid for. There are many instances why you might want to ride one-handed or have one hand free while you ride. And um, so it's, it's a great cue to teach the horse, but it, it does require a, a, another level of teaching that the leading rein doesn't require. So the leading rein sure. basically, you know, you're just placing the horse's nose. Now, a couple points of clarification here. You said to stay at that second level, which was doing the leading rein, following through with the neck rein, and then the third level, which was initiating with the neck rein. You said stay at each of those levels for a week, but you might ride more per week than somebody else does. So would you maybe say four to five rides in, is what That's you would what consider, I a consider a week? That's what okay. I consider a week, at least four rides. Um, okay. And, you know, that, there's no magic number. I just threw a figure sure. out there. I don't, I don't think you, you're probably not going to – you're not going to fully teach a horse to neck rein that's never neck reined in one session. It's going to be a cue that he learns over time. And you could, it would help if you started from the ground and you could just sort of t- lightly touch his neck and get him to bend it away from you. Um, but how fast the horse learns it is so dependent on the rider sure. and the timing and the pressure that you, I, I can't really say, but, um, you know, let's take take the untrained young horse, for example. Um, I would apply, so the first stage is you use both the leading rein and the neck rein, but your primary rein aid that you're reliant on is the leading rein. At the second stage, you start releasing the leading rein and holding the horse in the turn with the neck rein, correcting as needed with the leading rein, and then at the third stage, you start initiating the turn with the neck rein, correcting as needed with the leading rein. So um, with that young colt, you're, you're going to be using the leading rein for months anyway because mm-hmm. you don't you don't know anything. You, you right. Know, you're, you have no steering, no brakes, no nothing. And and he has to just spend a lot of time doing basic going forward, turning, turning. And um, so, but we still are applying that neck rein, and he'll start learning it more and more. And in very short order, at the walk, you can be riding him totally off, one-handed off the neck rein. But because he's young and green, the faster you go, the harder it gets to do his job, the more you're going to be going back to two sure. hands anyway. So, um, you know, it's... and You're it's laying the groundwork, but it's going to yeah, take a while yeah, to get all of that big, there. Right. It's a big foundation, and, and you can be neck you know, riding one-handed and neck craning beautifully at the walk and trot, but still reliance on two hands at the canter. So, um, and you always go back to two hands when you have trouble with your horse. So, um, you know, it, it's not a just one day you do it and then never, never right. uh, need it again. Go back so to two hands again. And that's my last 
clarification. So you've got the second level, the third level, the fourth level. At some point here, you do attempt to stay at one hand longer, but you could reach down and correct again with that leading rein when so you need it. Once you're turning and hold, turning, initiating turns and holding the turns as long as you want with the neck rein, and the horse is moving lightly off the neck rein, um, then you're ready to be riding one-handed. And so all during this process, I start bringing my hands closer and closer and closer together. Okay. So let's say I'm riding that young colt that only has, let's say, a week's worth of riding on him, and we're still barely just you know, doing very fundamental turns, stop, go, and turn. And um, my hands are probably going to be pretty wide apart a lot of the time. And as he starts getting more and more responsive, I start riding with my hands closer and closer and closer together. And so when you're ready to make that leap to riding one-handed, first practice, what I do is with – one hand on each rein, I bring my knuckles together and ride holding two reins and two hands, but my hands are together as one, mm-hmm. as if, uh, like, you had both hands on one joystick. Sure. And um, so ride with your hands together, and then you can – and this this is where riding with split reins comes in um, into play. Um, then I'll ride with – the the reins bridged in one hand in what's called the trainer's rein hold. Again, there's information on, on right. in my online resources about that. Um, and then, you know, and then the next rein hold is, is the more finished rein hold that you could actually show in, and that's uh, the uh, pistol grip or the split rein hold, which is your index finger between the reins. And then the final finished horse, and he may be six, seven, eight years old before he gets to this level. Let's say he was started as a two-year-old. He might be six, seven years old before he's been ridden in the full bridle with the rommel rein where you Mm -hmm. have no fingers between the reins and you have very little little ability to uh, rein the horse. And um, you can only move your hand a few inches right or left or up or down. So that's the progression. So it takes years to get the to the to that um, you know high level bridle western bridle horse, um, just like it takes that many years to get to a high level dressage horse as well. Sure, sure. And you're you're just helping the horse. The theme of that is you're laying the foundation so that you can get to that from early on. And even if you're holding the reins with two hands but close together, you're almost to the point the horse doesn't feel a difference between that and riding one-handed. It's just you have the ability to do that correction in a timely way. So I think that makes a lot of sense. All right. Uh Well, thank you, Julie. I think those are very helpful ideas to get people thinking, and uh, we will have some more of these questions soon. All right. You're welcome. I'm Heidi Malacco. I am here today with Desiree Johnson, the owner and designer of Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. And Desiree, you have a pretty interesting story being a rider of why you wanted to create the perfect jeans for people to ride in and why there was such a need for something that felt good in the saddle. Tell me a little bit about how you got started. Well, hello, Heidi. Thank you for calling. Yes, I do. Um, 
This all started uh, a few years before we bought the company. Um, I was uh, very lucky to have been able to have my own stable. Um, right. I had three stalls and I had a few event horses in training and my own ring and I was teaching and because I'm an event rider, okay. I was doing a lot of... Uh, a lot of setting up jumps and grooming the ring and, you know, the PP&D, the poop, pick up and drag, and uh, all, all the manual labor that goes along with uh, four acres of mowing and uh, gardening and all of that, being a wife and the shopping. And, and I was in my tack room one day, and uh, the, I was taking my breeches and boots off yet once again, Right. And I thought to myself, uh, there's got to be a jean out there. I need some blue jeans that I can also ride in. Right. Because I do so much teaching. I jump up on a horse for 10 minutes, then I jump down, and I have to set up jumps, and the, the you know, the britches just get, get thrashed. They're too nice to work in. I mean, to really, really work in. So I went to my local ranching home. Now, remember, I'm an English rider, so I went right. to a, a store specialty in western 20 different styles of western blue jeans and i asked the lady i told her i said i want your top of the line western riding jean not going to say the name of it because i don't want to smash it sure sure she took me to the top of the line and i looked at them and i looked at the seat area and i saw that lump but your best riding jean she said yes and i said well these aren't riding jeans and she looked at me she kind of blinked and i said there's this big lump in the crotch seat area and that's the whole reason why I'm here is because I can't ride in country western dancing jeans I need a riding jean and she said well this is this is it and so I you know I went home and I told Eric I said you know what I'm going to start my own business it's going to be called Designed by Desiree and I told him my story and what I did is I went online and at that time I didn't find anything like what it was that I wanted but I did find a pattern a buckaroo pattern. So I ended up, to make a, a long story short, I made three pairs of these little sweatpants that were you know, one seamless inside, right. seam up the front and the back, and they were basically little sweatpants with little knee pads. And I wore those little jeans. I, wore, I made a corduroy pair of printer and a lightweight jean material for summer. I wore them out. <laughs> Two years or so, wore them holes and what I loved about them is they were short, you know, right up to the ankle. I could stick them in my English boots, and then I would take my boots off. I could work in these little jeans, pants, all day long, and I could go grocery shopping, and I could get down in the dirt and garden and do the mowing and move my jumps. So finally they, they wore out, and it was around Thanksgiving time, and uh, I said to Eric, I said, there's got to be somebody who has thought of this idea. I can't be the only one. So I sat down with Mimosa, uh, at the holiday time, and I found Smooth Stride Riding Jean Company. And the mission statement and the explanation was exactly what I was looking for. And they were interested in selling the company, and Eric and I had a powwow, and we said, let's do it. And this thing that we were, we didn't know anything about the manufacturing clothing business, nothing. I know, it was really, the learning curve was incredible. The inventory that we bought, that we thought we were going to be able to buy, was all messed up. It wasn't graded mm. properly and didn't fit anybody. So we basically started from scratch. I redesigned this incredible already existing jean that had the seamless inside and was a boot cut. And I made it, I'm, I recreated the whole, uh, basically the waist contoured waistband, the 
grading is correct, the rise is correct for riders, for mature riders, not teenagers with, you know, that weigh 115 pounds. Mm-hmm. These are designed for women who have either had kids or not, but have lived with their bodies and, you know, for, for mature women. Have the curves that they are supposed to have once they have reached adulthood. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Now, tell me, what do you mean by the grade? Is that the way that the shape changes up around your waist? Well, for instance, when we got the inventory, I had these tiny little rises and huge legs. So the legs didn't match. So the lower part didn't match the upper part. So if you have a size 10 gene, it is graded size 10 the whole length of the gene. And that's... uh, it's a there's a science to it and okay. so our genes are you know we hired literally hired a specialist to grade the patterns correctly okay so, yeah there's a lot of math you've learned a lot of terminology about this and and so the big thing about these that makes them for riding what would you say are your, your top features that make them for riders not just for wearing on the street but you could do both yes you could the main thing is that cross lump and the seat area has been removed. Literally, they're, they're just like uh, how they build English riding breeches, only uh, they're Western boot cut. Second thing would be the rise in the back. It's hard to find a blue jean out there that calls itself a riding jean that has a, a correct um, rise. The contoured waistband, so it's just not a straight piece. It's also curved to shape to fit women's curves. And the stretch, it's a perfect amount of stretch. We have a special process that they don't bag out, so we've eliminated the bag out problem. So this jean that you buy will be the same size within eight hours or two days or three days. They don't, you just don't put them in the washing machine and they snap back and then bag out again. So if they don't fit, that probably means that you've gained a little weight. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm imagining what this means when you're actually on a day-long trail rider, like with you, with endurance riding I grew up riding western we always rode in jeans and I remember on longer days like the inside of your leg it'd be a little chaff but that's just what you had and I think it's interesting to hear you say with that English or endurance perspective everything you're thinking of has to do with how can I wear this all day be comfortable and make it through the miles right sure literally there are some of us that we get in the saddle after 10 minutes I was not comfortable right this it's also for instructors, for instance, who just get on, who are teaching all day long. They need a safe place for their phone for emergencies because we have a beautiful old, you know, classic welt pocket on the top of the right side that mm-hmm. is, uh, doesn't have any closure to break or anything, and it fits in snugly so it's not going to flop around. So even for instructors who have to get on a horse and just demonstrate something for 10 minutes and get back off again. Right, and feel comfortable in what you're getting down. Because I know when I have ridden English and you're in your breeches and sometimes you're like, whoosh, should I not? I I don't mind riding these in the saddle, but I definitely don't want to go in public in them. So I think that's a, a great aspect too, something you can be comfortable in, but you can get on and off and still do whatever you need to do. Sure. Yeah, I I was joking in another interview I did that you could be a lawyer with a blazer in an office and then you could go straight to the barn and you wouldn't have to change your pants all day long. And thinking about the rider, not somebody that's coming from the fashion world 
and how to make those look good at the barn, which they look good. All the jeans can look good, but mm-hmm. how can you find something that's going to keep you comfortable in the saddle, not have that big seam on the inside, right, where you're trying to have contact and right. communicate with your horse with your leg position, feel good no matter what you're doing. I spend so much money on equipment for our horse, and so I really feel like this is a, a very valuable piece of equipment for for riders finally. Good. Well, thank you for taking this on and figuring out something that's going to be good for a lot of riders. Thank you, Heidi. Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Check out smoothstride.com and find them on Facebook to thank them for making this podcast possible. Also, be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash podcasts for the full library of audio interviews you can listen to in the car or at the barn. listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Check out smoothstride.com and find them on Facebook to thank them for making this podcast possible. Also be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash podcasts for the full library of audio interviews you can listen to in the car or at the barn.